Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship. And the author is one of my colleagues here at the European Council on Foreign Relations think tank, Andrew. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship. And the author is one of my colleagues here at the European Council on Foreign Relations think tank, Andrew Wilson. If at first the subject of the book seems rather unpromising, persevere. Andrew does a fantastic job of telling the story of one of Europe's least understood places, and he does it with style and great insight. Enjoy the interview. Okay, well, joining me here in uh, ECFR's office, which of course is home to Andy himself most of the time, is Andrew Wilson, the author of Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship. Andy, I know a little bit about you because I, I work with you some of the time. But can you just explain a little bit about your own background, uh, how you got interested in this type of subject and, of course, how you ended up writing this book? Well, I've worked on Eastern Europe for 20, 25 years now. Uh, And by Eastern Europe, I mean the former Soviet Union in the main. I've written several books on Ukraine, uh, a, a big book on Russia and on Russian techniques of fixing elections. So Belarus was kind of a missing piece because the three Slavic core states, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, uh, I mean, not only do they fit together to a degree, they're also useful mirrors for one another. Uh, They're all all slightly different, but they all have sort of similar histories and cultures. So you actually understand Russia better, Ukraine better, if you know Belarus too. Now, I work with you uh, at ECFR, European Council on Foreign Relations, which is where we are at the minute, but this is now only a fifth of your life or whatever. Yeah, I'm also back at University College uh, lecturing at the moment in uh, Russian politics. Uh, I do a course called The Making of Modern Ukraine. I'm going to launch a, a third course on post-Soviet politics next year, which will cover all of the post-Soviet states. Uh, An actual course on Belarus might be a bit too specialised, but you never know, maybe in the future. Now, this is something I wanted to compliment you on with the book. When you pick it up and you see Belarus emblazoned over the over the, 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 the top of what is a very attractive cover, I've got to say, uh, then you think, Belarus, how much do I actually want to know about Belarus? But the more you start reading, the more it's obvious that, A, you tell a very good story, B, the story of Belarus is actually quite interesting, and C, this is a story that relates to lots of different areas. I can just, you know, anyone studying uh, nationhood, for instance, it would, it would fit in perfectly. Well, and to that I'd add, E, that... I tried to be honest at the, at the top in paragraph one by uh, addressing the reality of Belarusian obscurity. Uh, I, I never wanted to kind of oversell <laughs> the, the subject. You know, it's not, not the world's most important country or anything like that. In fact, I started with two famous disappearing acts, or three in fact, because I quoted a... Um, a paper by another think tank written back in 2000, which looked at the Europe in 2010, and Belarus wasn't even on the map anymore. So that kind of failed prediction is interesting. The, the other two disappearing acts, one was Lee Harvey Oswald, mm-hmm. when he was sort of... He wanted to disappear or pose as a kind of ordinary Soviet worker. Not particularly ordinary, of course, given that KGB was in the back room and... His uh, life was relatively privileged, but um, that obscure life was in Minsk, where he worked as a factory worker. How long for? Uh, about a year and a half. Okay. And picked up a wife, too. Um, also KGB approved. And the other despairing act is in Friends, the sitcom, for uh, listeners who are old enough to remember it. Or young enough. Or young enough. 
uh, one of Phoebe's boyfriends, Dave the Scientist Guy, is often described as being in Minsk, which means he isn't in this particular episode. It's, <laughs> it's a, good a kind way, of it's a good mythic way to get way of, rid of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, you also start off the book with a fairly blunt question, and that is, is Belarus a real country? Is it a real nation, I should say? Well, you got it right before. It, it, its history is very much bound up with uh, history of not just neighbours, but bigger neighbours in particular, Russia, Poland and Lithuania. Uh, are the key three, and not just in the sense of territorial overlap or shifting boundaries. Um, Lit- um, Belarus was very much part of other people's projects, or at least joint projects with other states. It's probably a better way of putting it in, mm-hmm. the, in the past. Particularly, well, what we call medieval Lithuania uh, had, had a very different name at the time. It was called Litva, yeah. Yeah. whereas the Lithuanian for Lithuania today is Litova. Mm-hmm. And Litva was this much more uh, territorial, civic, multi-ethnic state. And what we now call the Belarusians were a big part of that, in many ways a disproportionate part. This is a huge state, much bigger than modern Lithuania today. At one point it stretched from Baltic Sea to Black, um, so most of its population were not what we would now call ethnic Lithuanians. Uh, a near majority were Slavs, um, now called Belarusians, and they provided the uh, language of administration and the law, uh, in large part because the Lithuanians were also pagan until the end of the 14th century. So when you're talking about Litva, we're talking about before the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yeah, which is another project which kind of overlays mm-hmm. this particular history. But I note that Norman Davis has, a, has a, an excellent book that's just out called Vanished Kingdoms. Oh, yes. Uh, he's writing about you know, projects that for one, other, for one reason or other, although he also argues that a lot of states do disappear, this is perfectly normal, and a kind of warning to kind of modern-day states which think they're natural or secure. Yeah, that, I mean, the, the, the present point, 2011, is a fairly arbitrary point in history. We can't judge things just because they, they have or have not reached this particular point. Yeah, and there's a lot of counterfactual possibilities out there, you know, mm-hmm. you know which states could have still been with, with us if circumstances were different. But he, he also has a chapter called Litva on... Mm-hmm. Uh, on the, uh, on the the on the state in question, but yes, then that uh, in various stages, um, particularly the Union of Lublin, fifteen sixty nine, mm-hmm. became a joint state with Poland. But again, its proper name wasn't Poland; it was the Commonwealth. Rzeczpospolita. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was so it was a common project, mm-hmm. civic project of all of its constituent parts to unequal degrees. You know, the Poles were dominant, uh, but you had the Lithuanians, the what we now call the Belarusians, uh, as a considerable part of that. But and the Belarusians, they tended not to be politically active in the same way that the Polish and the Lithuanians were. Well, one thing about the Commonwealth is that... Uh, the people who really had common interests in the state were the Schlatter, the, mm-hmm. the nobility. Still a Polish word for, for nobility. Yeah, that they had um, political privileges, the famous, ultimately the famous Liberum Veto, um, you know, unanimous voting in Parliament and so on. Any noble could veto a project. Um, so, it, and it wasn't, of course, a, a, a electoral democracy. But the Belarusians were the, still called themselves Litvaks or Litvins. The local Jews prefer the term Litvak also. Uh, Mark Chagall, who was a Jew born in Vidsebsk, called himself a Litvak originally. He ended mm-hmm. up as a Frenchman, but by birth he was a Litvak. Um, so... Actually, what we now call the Belarusians stayed loyal to this 
uh, concept even after the state itself had disappeared, in fact, right down to 1914, 1917, they still thought of themselves as part of this multi-edric project and tried to re-establish it. Their problem was that the others weren't, weren't so interested anymore, that the Poles and Lithuanians had developed a much more ethnocentric views of their future statehood. Mm. One thing that's important to talk about also uh, at this stage is the stage is the kind of foundation myth and obviously in the 19th century, a lot of um, a lot of places that became nations, you know, uh, you describe it, you have a bit of academic interest, obviously rooting around in a language, trying to define what the language is. And then what you oft- what, what you described as a, often a, a kind of tragic uh, leader, a di- doomed poet comes along and, and kind of catalyzes it all. Uh, you talk also about uh, the Belarusian foundation myth being quite a decent one you you talk about a a powerful local kingdom an early status as a center of christianity itinerant vikings and a sorcerer prince who can turn himself into a werewolf now that seems like quite a good um, good start it's it's a good beginning for a country but also um there are several other bits and pieces with belarus that are worth mentioning i mean uh it's at the center of a lot of trading routes for instance the the rivers that lead around um this is where the vikings come in and and so on and so so you have a, a kind of geographical togetherness that looking at a map of europe you don't often notice with belarus it just seems to be in the middle of everything else well there's there's kind of three separate questions there one is um maybe we'll leave for another question you know who was writing this history in the 19th century Mm -hmm. this is actually people loyal to the russian empire for particular reasons we'll come back to that if you want um the um the the fairly solid start um refers to the kingdom or the principality of polatsk in the uh, 10th 11th century when it was as independent uh, of other principalities as, I guess, somewhere like Northumbria or Wessex within the all-English mm-hmm. context. Um, so there was a lot of cultural common ground with other local principalities. But uh, the dynasty was relatively uh, independent at various stages uh, and relatively solidified, it, power didn't change hands as much as in some other big cities um the prince who could turn himself into a werewolf well maybe he got a bit of a bad press um (laughs) the uh the allegation of werewolfery comes from uh the monks who are writing the chronicles at the time uh from a christian perspective and so he because he was a disloyal subject to the monk chroniclers in Kiev or Novgorod or wherever they were writing. Maybe maybe they were mm. making things up a bit. Yeah, can, can we just emphasise that they are only allegations that he could turn himself into a Yeah, world. not proven in court. Um, and what, one disadvantage, actually, that Polatsk, which is the name of this kingdom, had in the longer perspective was that it didn't have its own chroniclers or court historians. So although it was powerful at the time... Uh, its power, it, you know, faded mm-hmm. because local princes didn't sponsor the kind of history writing that turned other uh, principalities into kingdoms. Mm. On geography, it's good and bad because Belarus doesn't have a coast, so it's inland. And it's actually at the confluence several river systems. At various times in history, one or other of those rivers was important. Palatsk was powerful because it sits on the river Zvina, or Daugava, as the Latvians would call it, before there was a town called Riga at the mouth. The foundation of Riga led to the decline of Palatsk. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the trade route was up one river overland and then down the river Dnieper. Basically, the Vikings traded with Constantinople mm-hmm. via this slightly bizarre but at the time logical option. Um, 
made it powerful for a time, but, you know, schlepping longboats 50 miles from one river to the other wasn't a kind of viable transport system in the long run. So at uh, when the kind of power of the local principalities uh, waxed, this was an advantage, but when it waned, it was a disadvantage because Belarus is inland, it's largely wooden, um, it's also Route 1 for anybody invading Russia. As or, we'll get to a bit later on. Or uh, armies travelling in the op- opposite direction. Mm-hmm. So it's been a bit, you know, trampled underfoot over the years. Can I just jump from those two uh, comments to the 20th century? Because By all means. quite early on in the 20th century, you have it in exactly this, this position. You have it caught between the national project of Poland and the Bolshevik project coming from the other direction. Uh, What happened to it when the Soviet Union was born? Well, well, the third element in that picture is that the the local projects are are varied uh, and relatively weak. So there are some people who we now call Belarusians who um, still believe in this kind of multi-ethnic idea of a Litvin nation. And you actually talk about Piłsudski in Poland almost toyed with the idea of bringing together the, uh, you know, the, the Belarusian, Lithuanian and Polish peoples under, under some kind of agglomeration. Yes, though more specifically, the key ally in this project ought to have been the Lithuanians, mm-hmm. who weren't sufficiently interested. Though there was a interesting interlude where the Bolsheviks set up something called Lit-Bel, a kind of joint... Soviet Socialist Republics for Lit, Lithuania and Bell. In the same way that they did when they were in Central Asia, for instance, and set up a kind of joint one. Similar. The problem here that it was too lit and not enough Bell. Okay. It, it was really dominated by the Lithuanians. Um, the alternative nas- you know, national Belarusian movement is, is very, very small. Though there is a, a Belarusian People's Republic that enjoys a very brief um, existence in a few, for nothing more than a few weeks in 1918. But the bigger picture, uh, as you quite rightly say, is that the more, the real struggle is between Poland and the Bolsheviks with important other third parties, Mm -hmm. Lithuania, Latvia, and others, and... Ultimately, the borders are drawn not where the Belarusian activists want them to be drawn, but where the armies end up um, facing one another. At one stage, you know, the Poles are miles to the east. At one stage in 1990, they have their backs to Warsaw, Mm -hmm. the miracle on the Vistula. The border ends up somewhere in the middle um, with a large part of Belarus in interwar Poland could have been larger, could have been smaller. But yeah. what we do have is a Belarus within the Soviet Union, and every so often the, the borders and the shape and the size slightly change. But we've got a Belarus at this stage. The fact that it exists, yeah, it, you quite rightly uh, stress, because that's an important change. But it is a, quite an arbitrary mm-hmm. um, entity. It's initially very small. It includes Minsk, but Minsk wasn't the traditional mm-hmm. um, capital or, or, or centre of gravity for Belarusians. It had been Polatsk, uh, this city that's further to the north. Um, most recently it was Vilnius, or in Belarusian Vilnia, or in Polish Vilna. Um, a city with many names because coveted by many people. It actually ends up in Poland mm-hmm. at this period, after a Polish-Lithuanian war. Hence Mitskiewicz, and he was from Vilna, wasn't he? Uh, Adam Mitskiewicz? Yeah. Um, well, he's from near nearby. Um, this is an earlier time. Yes, yes. I, it's a bit of a distraction. I shouldn't have mentioned it. No, no. Uh, he, he, he was a Litvin too, because the the famous his famous... Poem Pantadius mm-hmm. um, starts with Vilna o Vilna. 
now it starts with Lithuania or Lithuania, but it doesn't. Oh, right. Because he actually says Litva uh, or Litva in the Polish version. So he was, you know, uh, fond of the region and its multi-ethnic past. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Central Asia because that, the Bolsheviks, quite clearly in the 20s and 30s there, are engaged in projects of ethnic engineering. Borders change all the time. And the Bolshevik Republic in the West that changes the most is, is the Belarusian one. Um, by, by the end of the 30s, it's, it's three times as big. Um, it's added territories to the east and uh, east and south. Big bites out, out of what is now Russia. Polatsk, for example, was originally part of the Russian um, Bolshevik Republic, but it shifted in the 20s. And then 1939 comes along. We have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and it moves all the way to the edge of the bug. Well, the kind of history of the pact itself is, is a history of Stalin exploiting um, uh, ethnicity as a bargaining tool to kind of push the borders of Be- Soviet Belarus and Soviet Ukraine as far west as he can. Uh, in the case of Belarus, they're actually pushed further west than they are today, quite a lot further um, from 1939 to 41, Belarus, uh, or Soviet Belarus, includes Bielastok, which mm-hmm. is now in Poland, um, post-war Poland. It doesn't include Vilnius, mm-hmm. although there was some initial confusion about who was going to get it. Uh, and some Belarusian Bolsheviks think it's uh, their first in the queue. <clears throat> Stalin probably calculated... Well, Stalin calculated that if Lithuania was being forcibly incorporated, then the uh, the restoration of Vilna to them as Vilnius um, was some compensation. And that was more important than what uh, particular bits of territory to give to Belarus. What kind the, of The important question Belarus? is that this was an open question, though. You know, the okay. borders were no mind, by no means set in stone. Um, the question that I, I wanted to ask was... During these early years of the Soviet Union, what kind of place was Belarus? There was a lot of industry there, um, and it was it was still a place with a large Jewish population. But it wasn't like Ukraine in that there weren't mass famines or anything like that. Can, can you just tell us the type of thing that that went on in Belarus? How was it different from Russia itself? Well, in the twenties and then thirties, between the wars, um, there isn't much industry or industrialization because the Bolshevik leadership quite rightly considers that um, it's too close to Germany and to Poland mm-hmm. which was initially considered the more likely threat um, so um, I mean even the industry that was built was often transferred lock stock and barrel after 1941 east um, but there's much more investment in Ukraine because it's geographically safer so Belarus remained largely small town and rural until after the war when it was physically safer within the Mm -hmm. expanded Soviet system Mm -hmm. um, with the Baltic states incorporated in the Soviet Union against their will Poland as a Soviet satellite and with East Germany, it was Soviet planners felt that it was safe to invest. In fact, because it was actually more central within the Comicom system, it became a hub for certain types of industry, like TVs. Um, but but we're not it, on <laughs> not on post-war Belarus yet. So. Yeah, but in 1939, it's still um, uh, small town and rural. And the Jews, overwhelmingly, lived in that small-town, rural, shtetl environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they also lived in Minsk in large numbers. Um, they'd been concentrated in the area by the Pale of Settlement, mm-hmm. but the area was relatively underdeveloped. It was the 
and it was the homeland of the intellectual Jewish culture of the Litvak Jews of the North. Uh, that included Vilna, of course, but Vilnius. Uh, and as Timothy Snyder points out, uh, quite rightly in his book Bloodlands, ironically, this makes them easier to kill mm-hmm. uh, when the Nazis and the SS arrive because they are concentrated in particular places. This brings us to Barbarossa, of course. And it's right smack bang in the middle of the German, of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, As you know, Andy, uh, uh, probably about three weeks ago, I actually popped over to Brest to see the the Brest Fortress, this this thing that literally was in the middle of the the advance of Barbarossa. And um, apart from thoroughly enjoying the experience, it really gave you a a picture of what it was like when suddenly the, uh, in June 1941... Uh, the Nazis invade. Um, the wartime experience of Belarus was, however, not a happy one. It was, um, well, the casualty figures are quite extraordinary. Can you um, talk us through what what the the wartime experience of Belarus was? Well, Brest um, is made a, a hero city, hero fortress, along with not many others after the war. Brest, yeah. the, the fortress held out for a month or so yeah. after the fortress sweep by. Exactly, is bypassed yes. you know, by the uh, sheer speed of German advance and Soviet collapse. Um, uh, I mean, with the war, you get the double tragedy of uh, the Holocaust and uh, local Slavs both being on, you know, the occupation, <coughs> partisan fighting. Yeah. Um, the um, partisan movement is the kind of, uh, in a long, you know, after the war, that is the positive that people take out of it, that it's the biggest per capita partisan movement. Uh, well, certainly in former Soviet territory, the Yugoslavs are mm. dispute. You know, who was number one in Europe in sort of per capita terms. And this but, is this this is largely because A, it's obviously well behind German lines, but also they have vast areas of marshes, the Pripet marshes. Yeah, so partly it's geography, it's marshes and it's forests that you can hide. And the German policy, which uh, is pretty dumb headed and brutal, regularly forces people into the forests and marshes. Um, Jews and Slavs, uh, brutality, the Holocaust, the um, rounding up of people to serve as slave labour, Ostarbeiten back in Germany. All of that drags many people into the net, but anybody who escapes um, goes into the forest. There, uh, There is also a kind of technical reason that the front is broken in the kind of east of Belarus in the winter of 41-42. So during that winter, um, the embryonic partisan movement can be supplied from uh, from the east. And then uh, German reverses elsewhere in the war, uh, Stalingrad, Kursk, they... Um, uh, that you know increases numbers. Well, by the start of 1944, uh, Hugh, I mean the majority of territory is controlled by the partisans. Interestingly, they're not um, in Ukraine. You get rival partisan movements. You get uh, Bolshevik, non-Bolshevik, nationalist, mm. um, Polish. Mm-hmm. Um, who often end up fighting each other. Initially, the Bolshevik partisans don't organise on the territories formerly part of interwar Poland, which um, means that the problem doesn't arise. Uh, there is a nationalist movement, but it's co-opted by the Nazis. Um, uh, so the partisans tend all 
all to be either local guys just defending their village or, or Bolshevik, but there and, were, which is why they're easier to Jewish, celebrate after the war. There are also Jewish partisans, specifically Jewish partisan bands. Very much so. Some Jews join the, the Bolsheviks, some set up their own groups. The most celebrated being um, the Bielski brothers, mm-hmm. who were subject of a book and then a film, Defiance, starring Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. But this, this um, experience of partisan warfare as you said, is something that, that, that lives on after the war as a, as a way of defining the Belarusian experience. Because when you look at the figures, and we're not just talking about the, the obviously horrendous figures of the proportion of Jews killed during the war on Belarusian or from Belarusian territory, uh, the number of Belarusian people who are non-Jewish is also extraordinary. Yeah, the slaughter of the Jews was worse because it was almost total. Um, the number of non-Jewish locals killed is... Well, it, in, in total, the figure set, set on is, settled on is normally 2.2 million out of a population of 9 or 10. OK. So... Uh, so one in four of the pre-war population. Yeah. And that includes Jews. Yeah. Um, the um, partisans, particularly because they're communist partisans, so in, in post-war Soviet politics... Uh, seniors, okay, acceptable. Um, they can walk tall in post-Soviet politics. They are also able able to leverage their prestige to win investment, reconstruction, and industrialization. Ultimately, by about 1980, that irks some people who think they're a bit too big for their boots. Mm-hmm. Um, Brezhnev, for example didn't like the uh, Belarusian leader of the uh, 70s, uh, Masharov, because he was a war hero and Brezhnev wasn't, really. Although Soviet historians tried to make out that he was. Uh, his service was a bit less active. Um, and that's been... I mean, to fast-forward to the modern day, uh, Lukashenko, the current president, has been able to free-ride... Mm-hmm. on the kind of investment, which is not only post-war, it was actually mainly from the 60s, 70s and even 80s. Mm. So the capital stock is relatively new. Minsk, if you go there, is this kind of ideal Soviet city because mm. it was completely flattened, rebuilt in the ideal Soviet style, wide boulevards, big... Monumental. Mental, I was going to say ugly, but we call them monumentalist. No, I always building. find things like that quite attractive, <laughs> certainly interesting. Well, GUM, the kind of departmental yes. store, is the most attractive, or at least the most typical. You know, it has the, the usual homoerotic art at the entrance. Um, gilded, gold-gilded workers and peasants. But when you walk through the entrance, there's actually food in the shop. So it's the Soviet Union as it should have been. Let's talk about where the where the war left uh, Belarus. One of the things that it's quite noticeable, uh, or one of the things I, I remarked upon in your book, is the fact that for the first time, Belar- ethnic Belarusians, as they were, were the majority in the towns, probably because of the impact of the, the loss of the Jewish population. Yes, and the ethnic cleansing, as we now call it, of the Poles, mm-hmm. particularly in the West, which was... Not complete, still quite a considerable Polish minority. And it's worth remembering, uh, and this is another thing that Timothy Snyder points out, that a lot of Poles also were vanished in the pre-war period by Stalinism. Sure, sure. Uh, At a time when they were seen as the main threat to the Soviet project. Uh, Although, on the other hand, ethnic cleansing, if you want to use that dangerous euphemism, uh, is mutual. Um, mm-hmm. Belarusians and larger numbers of Ukrainians are expelled east as well as po- Poles moving west but um, as I say it's not complete there is still a Polish minority in what is now the northwest. Um, but for the first time because um, of dramatically reduced Jewish uh, and Polish populations Belarusians become urban majorities yes Mm-hmm. And as you were describing, there's a lot of industrialization goes on. Is it fair to say that Belarus, relatively speaking, did quite well out of the Soviet Union? 
it if you assess um, doing well or doing badly in very utilitarian terms, which I wouldn't, <laughs> or at least not solely, Belarus does relatively well, but only in the post-war era uh, in terms of um, reconstruction and uh, further industrialization, um, which is one reason why the ordinary Belarusian uh, remembers the Soviet period um, with, well, amongst the elderly with what we have to call nostalgia. Um, and plus, although there are purges in Belarus, they often target minorities, particularly the Poles uh, in the 30s. There's no real equivalent of the kind of sheer horror that the Holodomor or the Ukrainian famine produces as a kind of collective trauma memory um, or forced sedentarization in for the Kazakhs. Um, but there are, there are big, as, as everywhere, uh, large purges of the intelligentsia in 1936, 1937. And when mass graves are found uh, outside Minsk, Kuropati, in the 1980s, that that's a big shock to the system and a, a big factor undermining Soviet power. We're going to fast forward again because, in a sense, Belarus, there was this nostalgia for for the Soviet Union when it ended. And in a, in a way, they've kept the Soviet Union alive under Lukashenko. This is where we have this quote from um, Condoleezza Rice about uh, Europe's last dictator back in 2005, I think it was. And many people look at Belarus and think, well, in its own way, it does mimic the Soviet Union. Let's talk about Lukashenko. Well, Lukashenko's power base, currently diminishing, um, but the power base that he established and until recently kept since 1994, which is when he first came to power, is disproportionately amongst the elderly, amongst rural populations, um, amongst those with shorter or incomplete education, amongst industrial workers, etc., etc. Uh, and the key to that has been his rebuilding, not not of the command economy. I mean, he's rebuilt a command economy which doesn't work particularly well, particularly now that the economy is under strain, but of the Soviet welfare state, largely paid for with other people's money, mainly Russia's. Um, but he has been able, um, or he was able in the good years when the economy grew between... 96 and 2008. Um, he has been able to provide um, welfare in a kind of Soviet sense, um, health, education systems until recently were fairly intact. You didn't have the kind of terrible problems with falling population, with public health issues like HIV that Russia has. Um, and for the last elections in 2010, he met his target to increase the monthly wage to $500 a month. Doesn't sound like much, but uh, that's progress over the last 15 years. Uh, real standard of living has gone up quite considerably, albeit with other people's money. Um, though in the last year, it has collapsed because what? of the strain of getting there and the fact that Russia is less generous than it was. What kind of man is Lukashenko? Because he's, he, was a, he was the director of a state farm. Um, and then you write in 1994, he, he kind of balanced between being a populist, a liberal reformer and a Russophile. Uh, and then obviously things changed. Otherwise, Condoleezza Rice would not have been describing him as Europe's last dictator. Mm. Well, there's an interlude here that we haven't talked about from 91 to 94, uh, Vyacheslav Kebich, um, who had actually become technically prime minister uh, earlier in 1990, remained in charge. And he represented the kind of 
Soviet elite, the kind of managerial nomenclature, mm-hmm. the factory bosses. Um, so Lukashenko's advantage at that time was that he was seen as a relative outsider, relatively young, um, and as you say, he'd been a farmer, uh, border guard, um, lecturer, many things. Um, he, I mean, you can quite clearly tell that um, the, one reason why the personal relationship between him and Putin uh, is so bad is that Putin thinks he's a mujik, Russian word for peasant, um, and that he had been part of the KGB border guard, but at a lower level even than Putin uh, mm. in Dresden when he served for the KGB. So Putin quite clearly looks down on him. But Lukashenko has... Well, he has height, actually, so Putin can't look down on him. Um, but he has a kind of native cunning. Um, he's crude, he's populist, uh, which, interestingly, he learnt from a, a bit from Yeltsin, but also from Zhirinovsky as kind of ironic role models. Um, so that kind of crude populism is, you know, plays well with some local voters. Um, but the kind of social contract that until recently has kept him in power is, is pretty instrumental. He, he delivers or did deliver relative prosperity in return for less freedom, hence Condoleezza Rice's quote. Um, there has always been a, a, a solid minority who was opposed to that implicit bargaining, bargain, beg your pardon. So not everybody bought this contract which I suppose is, is like Putin's, but Lukashenko's thought of it first. But there's also the contract with uh, with Russia and Putin as well, which is he provides stability and a friend on the eastern border, on the western border, rather. Well, the key to Lukashenko's survival, which is 17 years in power today, uh, has been two things. One, one, this social contract if we're happy to use that term. Uh, And the other is getting other people to pay for it Uh, by playing a variety of roles in a foreign policy balancing act. Initially, he he had a relationship with the IMF. You know, he toyed with the idea of being a liberal in 1994, but they weren't offering enough money and actually wanted him to reform his economy, so he wasn't keen on that. Um... Then with Yeltsin, he sort of sold the idea of a union state, uh, which came into being, albeit on paper, but uh, with some degree of reality. There's open borders between Belarus and Russia. And if you go, if you land in Moscow airport, the people uh, ahead of you in the queue will be Russian citizens or citizens of the Russian Belarusian Union. Um, So it has some reality. Uh, he, but he also sold himself to Yeltsin's nationalist opponents as a, as a Russian nationalist. And there was a time in the late 90s when he seriously thought he could be a player in all Russian politics. Putin comes along and... Um, Putin is Russian, Russia's saviour, not Lukashenko. Um, so he, he's had to kind of reinvent his role with, for Putin. Uh, most successfully as a bulwark against coloured revolution Mm -hmm. in 2003-2004. The first two years with Putin weren't so good. There were a lot of tensions. But suddenly he is useful again, um, and he quite cynically sells his role as a bulwark against this democratic virus spreading to Russia. And as a kind of... um, And sort of selling the possibility of Belarus being a kind of... Uh, field for experiment for counter-revolutionary technology as Kremlin guys quite openly call it so the kind of methods that Russia now uses to keep democracy under control were sort of tested in Belarus first Can I ask two questions? We're coming to the end of this so fairly brief answers to very complex and difficult questions first of which is will Lukashenko survive 
And the second one is an even bigger question, I suppose, and that is um, it's been mooted, at least in the popular press over the last few years, that there is the potential that Belarus might be subsumed into a much more formal relationship with Russia. And in, a, in effect, this Belarus of which we've talked for 45 minutes or so will disappear as a, as a single entity. Do you think uh, Belarus will, will still exist in 15, 20 years' time? Yes. Um, so your, your second question is easier to deal with. If, I mean, well, maybe Lukashenko is such a chameleon that if a genuine all-Russian nationalist came to power, then that might be different. Um, but on the other hand, it's very tempting to say either if even Lukashenko hasn't been prepared to surrender sovereignty, it's never going to happen. Uh, I mean, that that seems the much more likely scenario. Um, he, he is currently, in terms of your first question, in, in search of a new role, but selling, selling your entire state to Russia doesn't make sense because it only works for a brief period, and then you're out of power. Um, so the second question is the easiest to answer. Yes, Belarus is now here to stay, albeit not the Belarus that Belarus nationalists wanted uh, in 1991 or 1918. Um, the, their version of history isn't taught in the schools. The Belarusian language remains marginal in the system. Um, so it's a very different Belarus, Russian-speaking. Um, people either speak Russian or the local mixture of Russian and Belarusian, which is called Trasyanka. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lukashenko? And n- neo-Soviet in many ways. So it isn't the kind of Belarus that they wanted back in '91, but it's here to stay. Will he survive? Um, well... Until the last elections, which were in December 2010, there were grounds for saying that he was a dictator, but a reasonably rational or successful, better word, one. Um, He survived, and in many ways he prospered, largely by playing off one side against the other, Russia against the West in the main. So the crude and crass repression of the opposition um, after yet another fixed set of elections in December 2010 was not only uh, reprehensible in itself, it was a strategic mistake because the economy was uh, facing very difficult times, which he knew, uh, made worse by the kind of spending spree before the election. Um, and economic choices are now very stark and very difficult, but he uh, sundered relations with the West. So now his only option is really Russia. Um, But Russia is now playing much tougher and is much more utilitarian about uh, providing very limited aid in order to get the things that it wants, which is key assets, industries, uh, privatised into the hands of Russian oligarchs. He's toyed with the idea of using China as an alternative balance instead. But China has proved disappointingly mercantilist. Um, China's happy to invest in particular projects, uh, rebuilding Minsk Airport, for example, and has talked about participating in privatisation, but it won't provide him with free money. Why should it? Uh, and his basic problem is empty kitty, um, no reserves to fund, fund the balance of payments. He needs hard cash, and why should the Chinese give it him? So his strategic problem is that he only has Russia as a potential partner. Uh, his economic problem is that the house of cards has come crashing down um, without sufficient rent or subsidy from other people. Um, the contradictions of the system are exposed and the strengthening, actually, of the command elements of the economy in the last year um, has been totally counterproductive. Um, there was some toying with limited market reforms in the last two or three years, but they've all been ditched. Uh, I mean, he's brought back 
price controls on basic products like meat, concrete, two very different items. Um, but they have one thing in common that there isn't any. Right? <laughs> as soon as you subsidise these products, Absolutely. they're getting sold to Russia, <laughs> where they command a higher price. Um, so the kind of manual control that's been brought back is uh, hideously ineffective. The Belarusian ruble's been devalued three times. So the average Belarusian who had this $500 salary in December 2010 now has a salary that's worth 180 Extraordinary. So the economy's crashed. Andy, I've taken up enough of your time already. Let's hear one more thing about you rather than Lukashenko. What are you working on now? Ah, well, um, a bigger project uh, on the on all the post-Soviet states, uh, sort of looking at their different trajectories, different experiences over the last 20 years. Um, probably better if I was finishing that rather than starting it now, so it would come out at a logical anniversary, 20 years after the fall. Mm-hmm. Well, you can aim for 25 if you're struggling. Maybe, less marketable. Um, the The reason that's an attractive project is that I can't possibly... Write fully, write full histories of fifteen countries over twenty years. So it has to be my author's choice of sort of strategic questions. You know what's interesting about all of these countries like Belarus, rather than sort of giving uh, incomplete potted histories. Just you know, why is each important or dangerous or interesting? Sounds like a good read, Andy. When it comes out. <laughs> 20th anniversary 21st 22nd 25th whenever it comes out thanks very much indeed my pleasure and that was my interview with andrew wilson the author of belarus the last european dictatorship this is nicholas walton from new books in european studies wishing you a good day from here in london mm-hmm.